This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today we have the returns of two of uh, Malaysia's greatest uh, theatre uh, practitioners. No, I don't want to overstate it. They're quite good. So uh, <laughs> he is uh, an actor, a writer, filmmaker. He is Na'a Murad. Great to be back. Good, 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 good to see you. And she is, uh, she is an actor and a director and a producer in theatre especially, but also occasionally you'll see, you might see her on film and TV. Uh, and she is Jo Kukatas. Hello. Nice to be back, Cam. Uh-huh. It's great to have you here. Our three topics this week will be, topic number one is Afghan film rescue. Topic number two is how to be alone. And finally, topic number three is a compare and contrast COVID-19 responses between Malaysia and the UK. Uh, so, uh, no, uh, Afghan film rescue, what's going on? Right, right. The, the Afghan film industry is, is pretty much similar to Malaysia's. Started in the 40s, had that flowering in the 80s when um, colour came in and cameras were better and stuff. But ne- never a big industry. Probably even smaller than the Malaysian industry, you could say. But, you know, they made thousands of films. When the Taliban took over, took power in 1996, TV was banned, totally verboten, cinemas closed, turned into cafes and stuff. And many films were actually burnt by the Taliban because mm-hmm. of um, reasons were not clear, but probably because they had women dancing, you know, in you know, sexy clothes or whatever it was, or, or the themes were not um, Taliban approved. Um, so all the, the entire history of, Afghanistan's uh, film film industry was, was in danger of, of becoming ashes. So in um, uh, Afghanistan, there is a body called the Afghan Film Organization, the EFO. It's a state-run company. And um, it sounds to me from the little information I got, it's closer to film Nagara than to Finas, if you know what I mean. More archival, stuff like that, rather than trying to nurture the industry, that kind of stuff. And at that point, when the Taliban took over, the person running the AFO was somebody called Habibullah Ali. And he did this incredible thing. Right? He, he was supposed to turn the movies over or just wait for the Taliban folks to come and, and hack the films, uh, all the, the movies to pieces. But what he did was he got his team together and he started making false rooms. They were making false walls. They got contractors to build... Um, literally secret vaults within the, 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 the auspices, within the building of the AFO, where they hid thousands and thousands of films. And, and others, they, they found underground places in the city where they just... And they did it all pretty quickly, not, not wanting to leave anything to chance. So for, that, uh, for, for, the, for, for five years, these movies were literally uh, doing an Anne Frank, right? Just, just, just hiding away from... from death and torture and you can't torture films but you can be tortured by films well anyway um (laughs) then then in 2001 um after you know the the war against terror and everything and the afghan government just started you know like um petering out afghan films slowly returned these movies were back in circulation and as a result you know the, the 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 Afghanistan film industry has been doing really, really well. I mean, a, a film called Kandahar in 2001 was, was very well received. I don't know if you guys have seen it. A movie called Osama in 2003 won awards at Cannes in London. Yeah. So um, it literally was uh, that close. The whole 
Afghanistani film industry was that close to just being extinct, and now it's healthier than ever. So, um, I mean, it, it's a thriller in itself. It's a movie in itself. These people sort of like, mm -hmm. um, um, so literally, I can imagine if they were caught, they probably would have been punished horribly for, for you know, um, um, going against a dictate. And um, um, to, to hide these films is actually very thrilling. It's very inspiring, you know. And, and well, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to make any comparisons to any other country. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the, the, the comparisons <laughs> aspect, nah, it's like, um, well, yeah, what, what drew you to this uh, story? Were you thinking <laughs> anything at all? Comparison? No, no, nothing, nothing. It was just a, a good source for your show, I thought. Yeah. As somebody who, as somebody who follows you on Twitter now. <laughs> it's funny, you know, film is, a, film is a is a fairly new invention. Um, I mean, a hundred or so years. And in, as you said, in the case of Afghanistan, I mean, they may have been making films for what, I don't know, 50 years or so? And, uh, and it, 40 years, yeah, so... Yeah. And in, in, uh, in post-independence Malaysia, um, not a very long time, but it's like we've become so dependent on film as a archive of culture. I think uh, overly dependent, perhaps. Um, but yet, you hear stories about in the seventies and the eighties when the film industry was was not so healthy that um, Film Negara, who I could say could be our version of AFO, um, did not even have the resources to maintain a lot of our films, a lot of yeah. our classic films, yeah. the, the masters, the, the negatives actually became moldy. Yeah. Well, we, have, we have the extra um, um, disadvantage of being in a tropical country. So uh, things like, like yeah. film stock and, and, and negatives have to be maintained very well. And we lost a lot of our classic films, films we will never ever see again, even from, from big names like Piramli and, and Matsuntol and you know, um, legendary names like that, uh, Omar Raji, Hussein Hanif, so are they gone? I mean, they, that, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but you know, uh, the, the passion that these people had to, to save their culture, to save mm. films. Also, I mean, while, while, but while film has been around, I mean, you know, it's a relatively short history of film, as Cam said, but what has been, what is very long in Afghanistan is history of culture is very long. I mean, they have um, a very long, complex culture of literature, poetry, dance, music. Many, many stages of, of civilizations which mm. were very, very, very different. A mm. Buddhist culture, a this culture, a that culture. It's, it's, it's ancient, let's put it yes. that way. And, and, know and, and it's been preserved. I mean, unlike, unlike here, we've, it's been preserved in literature, it's been preserved in dance forms and, and in, in music as well. Um, and, in mon and in monuments, as you said, in Bamiyan mm -hmm. and things like this. Whereas I think here, uh, it's it's that's that's kind of relatively relatively unpreserved, I would say. A lot of our uh... well, I, uh, the history of Malaysia is so much shorter than Afghanistan. Alexander the Great went through Afghanistan. <laughs> it's, it's all documented, but we. Um, uh, I, I think that in Afghanistan, I don't really know not enough about it, but I think that culture has been violently contested, mm. um, and things have been approved and disapproved yeah. on on a ten year rotation yeah um whereas I, I think here that the the approval and disapproval is a more subtle one so a lot of things are neglected because it's like it's now out of fashion and, and it's, often... it's it's uh yeah it, it's almost become the negligence comes from just i guess people just just not seeing it as being important because um the nitty-gritty of everyday life is just 
so all-consuming. I think people people are just. Well, yeah, and also we mustn't forget that P. Ramley died in poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his own lifetime, his 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 films failed, and he was he was lost in his own lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think artists are held in terribly high regard here. So um, if you're not held in high regard, there's, there's not going to be not just other people not kind of trying to save your work, but you're not going to go all out to save your work. There's not going to be, I mean, this person who tried to, you know, who hid all these reels, you know, and went to all this trouble because he felt there was something really worth putting his neck on the line for, which is kind of interesting. You know, would anybody, nobody put their neck on the line for P. Ramley? And, and even but, he, but, but, but also who is chosen? I, I, it could be just Habibul Hali. I know nothing about it. The, the person mm-hmm. running AFO now is a woman, by the way. Mm-hmm. I can't recall her name. But I, I get the feeling that people who were chosen or people to, to, to be in this position are people who really, really, really care. Mm-hmm. I think they were chosen for a reason. They're, they're, not, they're not bureaucrats. They're not um, cronies. They're not just somebody off the street who says, yeah, I'll do the job. You know, yeah. it's, it's, well, it's also that culture of actually putting putting um, talent where, where talent belongs, basically, yeah. or passion where passion belongs. Yeah, we must move on, but I, I just want to ask you both very quickly then, if, if, if we were in an ongoing Taliban situation, uh, heaven forbid, <laughs> what, what would you mm-hmm. grab and hide behind your false wall? Uh, from my Malaysia. Fault, in my little apartment in Australia where I've run off. Yeah, I mean, contemporary films, I would, I would say Bunuhan, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, we'd say P. Ramli, because one says P. Ramli. <laughs> yeah. Everyone just has to, yeah. 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 Uh, what would you? I, I would hide my books, really, because um, I don't know if I can get my hands on those films. So I would, I would hide the books which I know are going to be burned. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, I'd hide um, Confessions of an Old Boy by Cam Ruslan. And uh, <laughs> now oh, available yeah. on. Actually, no, Cavendish. not available. But and a bowl of laksa. I mean, it wouldn't keep behind that wall, but it, it, it's an emblem, I think, of uh, of, of Malayan Malaysian history. You, uh, you can get a bowl made by those people who make the food for Japanese restaurants for display. Like, <laughs> the uh, plastic thing that stays yeah, forever. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully, we don't come to that. So we're going to move on though to uh, topic number two. Uh, Joe, how to be alone. Yeah, so I, I thought of this topic because I've been working on this project with uh, a friend of mine who, who initiated this project uh, as a director. And it's a collaboration we're doing with um, a couple of uh, uh, theatre makers from, from the US, you know, because we're looking at, uh, I think 2020 made us think about uh, about being alone being because alone, people yeah. were in lockdown, uh, people couldn't see each other. So a lot of meditation about, well, what, it, what is it to be alone? Which then led them to ask this question, which I think is a really interesting question, which is how to be alone. And so we've been researching and talking about a lot of things, but there were a couple of stories that came up in, in, in our rehearsal conversations uh, and research. And one of them was about this Russian family who uh, for 40 years were completely unaware of what was going on in the rest of the world, unaware of World War II. Uh, they had uh, fled, um, uh, uh, civilized part of the Soviet of, of Russia at the, at the time Russia in 1936 
uh, to go into the to go into Siberia to go into the into the, the, the what is called the taiga the taiga of, of 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 Siberia, which is one of the coldest, most remote places. It's five million square miles. There are a couple of towns, and there's only like a few thousand people in all of that area. But this family, the the Lyko family, they fled because they were part of this um, this part of this. Uh, well, they were called the old believers, right? So they worshipped, and they were Christians, but they worshipped in a very particular way, you know, Russian Orthodox way, but they were a very fundamentalist sect, which dated back from the 17th century. And they started being persecuted during the time of Peter the Great, because Peter the Great wanted them to modernize, and they wanted to retain their old cultural practices the way they always had. And what kind of brought things to a head was that he... Um, he wanted to modernize Russia, so he had to, he forced people to chop off their beards. If you were Christian, you had to chop off your beard. And if you didn't chop off your beard, uh, um, you would have to pay a beard tax, right? And if you didn't pay a beard okay. tax, then they would grab you on the streets and they would shave off your beards. So this particular family, you know, first of all, it was Peter the Great, who they still regarded, you know, till recently as their own personal enemy. Then the Bolsheviks took power. And of course, Christians were in fear of their lives anyway. So this particular family, the Lyko family, uh, after, the, after Mr. Lyko's brother was killed in front of his eyes by the communists, took his uh, family of four and fled into the forest. And they were found in 1978 by some Soviet geologists who were flying over the area because you know it's a place rich for prospecting. My and they found them after 40 years. And this is a place, you know, completely desolated place. By this time, even that things like kettles had rusted away. So they had made everything just from things they could find. Their clothes from wood, which they had pounded and turned to hemp, boiling things in bark. Um, uh, two more children had been born in this situation and they'd never, they had no idea of what was going on in the rest of the world. But what, what struck me about the story was that they were willing to leave everything behind and to be in this kind of place, state of isolation because society was not the way they wanted it to be. So for me, the question was about those who leave society to be alone um, because they see that, well, there's no purpose in being part of a society. What is the purpose of being part of a society where you don't agree with how things are run? And there's no acceptance and it's, it's actually um, dangerous to actually be part of a society that doesn't want you. Yeah. And, and there were two other people who kind of come across in our research. And one of them is this guy, Christopher Knight, who basically was living within a one mile radius of people in a campsite, but who eluded, uh, who eluded people for 27 years. Nobody ever saw him. Uh, he, he managed to live by routinely stealing things from people's campsites, going into small log cabins and things, and just taking what he needed and covering his tracks. Sometimes he'd borrow a boat to go out fishing and bring the boat back, and nobody saw him in 27 years. There was one person who saw him. The only exchange he had with anybody in 27 years was a hitchhiker who said hi to him, and that was it. And the third story was this, is this woman who, um, who's, who became a Buddhist nun, uh, and Tenzin Palmo, and she spent 12 years in a cave. And she was very happy in her cave. She said, she, people said, well, you, weren't you bored? Did you go out of your mind? Weren't you, weren't you driven crazy? And she's like, no, I was very busy. I had things to do. And yet last year, so many people were, were talking about how difficult they found it to be alone. So I, I wanted to ask this question of you and our viewers, our, our listeners, I should say, how to be alone. And 
are we suffering from this problem of not being able to, to be alone because we think it's just wrong? Do well, we? But can I just ask though, the, the three uh, examples you gave, um, mm. two of them were very obviously driven by some religious uh, motivation, some religious zeal. The, mm. the, the fellow who was the, the abominable Christ, snowman fellow. Knight, yeah. Right? Bigfoot kind of guy. He was, do we know his, uh, anything no. about his impulse? Motives, yeah. No. But even the Lyco family, right? Interesting. I mean, they, they, they fled because of religious persecution. But they didn't, they didn't just go flee and be near other people who are of similar persuasion because many people kind of fled. But they didn't all end up like completely isolating themselves from the rest of the world. Right. Like, yeah, but that could have been, you know, like uh, some some friends like, yeah, we'll do it too. We'll meet you there. And they got to the town. <laughs> maybe they had no choice. I mean, out of necessity, people have isolated themselves. But maybe um, the family, the, 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 the Orthodox um, Russian, they, um, maybe they had no choice. I mean, to go to, the, to Siberia, to go to the, you know, to that part of the world. You, you, you know the hardship's going to happen. You, yeah, you're not going to be able to put up notices going, hey, anybody wants to join us in this yeah. commune. Uh, yeah. But as you told those stories, Joe, I, I, was, I was not tempted by any of them. Each story sent a no. sort of shiver down my spine. On the one hand, I like a bit of solitude. I really do. But, mm. but, but that kind of abandonment of society altogether, no. I, I just, that's terrifying to me. Mm. I, I, it is not tempting. Also, it requires it requires certain skills and, and certain mm. fortitude to even survive a month. Mm. It, it really does. If you, if three, the three of us were put in a um, in a wilderness situation, miles and miles away from any anything, even with the basic tools that we need, we'd probably go crazy or die mm. um, of, of one reason or the other, one mishap or the other, within within weeks. Okay, um, but let's say I mean all those people said that they they they. Uh, Live quite comfortably, and well, mm -hmm. no, sorry, not the Russian family, but Christopher Knight and Tenzin Palmo basically said there was enough for them to forage and find, and they were not suffering any hardships. He even stole a radio, he stole a little TV set, had, had a TV for a while. Uh, she was kind of reading, cultivating things, um, and I mean, he shaved every day because he didn't want people to think he was some wild man and kind of capture capture him. Um, but it was so. Let's say now we in our own in our own houses, let's say under lockdown, can't go anywhere. Uh, but we have, you know, Netflix, we have a fridge with some food in it. Um, we have maybe the companionship of, you know, a couple pets. of animals, yeah. right, pets. But yet people don't know how to be alone. So I, I guess I'm kind of wondering, are we finding it difficult to be alone nowadays? Are, are, we, are we too connected that we, we suffer if we can't uh, be with other people? But we're, we are evolved as uh, communal animals. We, yeah, we are, we are social animals. We, we survived for hundreds of thousands of years in small communities. Mm. Um, Relying no doubt, upon each but, other. Yeah. I mean, we have, therefore, we have so many sets of eyes to look at the things that are going to come and eat us. Mm. Um, so, so do you think that's an, an unnatural thing then to want to be alone? I, I don't know, Joe. I, I've been human, yeah. alone in, in, in a certain sense, even before the pandemic for many yeah. years. And I kind of enjoy being alone, but I'm not really alone. And, the, and that's, what makes it, um, that's what makes it all right. Because I can choose whenever I want to have interaction with people. Mm. Um, and, and I make the most out of my interactions with people. I, I haven't been, I, I don't understand what it's like to be pushed to the point where I want total isolation with maybe a chosen few. I mean, the, the, 
the Grizzly Adams guy obviously would pre prefer to be totally alone, and and so did Anand. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think it's something that's ever crossed my mind. I mean, like but, Cam, um, a chill goes down my back thinking yeah. that you know. Because Joe, I mean, you're the one who's raised the question. What you? What about you? Are you? You hear these stories and you think, oh, that sounds nice. I do I do I do understand and like ap appreciate what happens to you when you are in enforced loneliness it's not easy because I think what happens when you are forced to be alone is that you're forced to kind of look at yourself which is and maybe that's the scare I'm trying to figure out what, what is it's a scary thing right because um, we distract ourselves with other people uh, as soon as you are alone then there's no distractions or not as many distractions. So I, I wonder, it's not that I have any answers about this, but I think rather, um, why is it that people, you know, recoil as, as you, you know, mm -hmm. and not just because of, you know, it being sort of a Grizzly Adams kind of situation, but rather you think, well, I don't want that. I don't think I could cope with that. And, um, and I'm wondering whether or not um, there is something to be said for a state of solitude. So we have to actually conclude here because uh, okay. but I think the conclusion that we can make is uh, that uh, Joe you are on your own with being on your own <laughs> me and Nat are not going to join you on this one no sorry <laughs> no yeah well yeah. No, I'm, I'm just saying that if, if something happens and you're forced to be on your own now you've not thought about it you will be prepared That's yeah no I'm, I'm pretty good with uh, a bit of solitude but I find that there is a limit I've discovered there is a limit but some people just cannot take it for one second and, and it's in our DNA. We're not, we're not really designed for it. But it also depends might. on where you are. If you, if you are in this place, which is beautiful, open country or whatever, you, you might find something. But if you're in a room, in a house, yeah, yeah, you go crazy. Is you go crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to move on. And uh, in a moment, uh, we're going to uh, investigate the cultural differences between the reactions toward COVID-19 in Malaysia and in the United Kingdom here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Joe Kukathas, and Na'a Murad. And now, topic number three, uh, compare and contrast the reactions toward COVID-19 in Malaysia and the United Kingdom. Because, I mean, some of the, some of the older listeners might know that I've, I've been in, in England now for, for, oh God, it feels like forever. I had to dash out here for uh, emergency. Uh, and I'm, uh, the emergency is now dealt with. But um, getting back to Malaysia is its, it's, uh, is its own Oh, long journey. So uh, I will be back eventually. Um, but it's been really interesting being here to to be able to see the different reactions to COVID-19 because you kind of would have thought that something as, as big as a pandemic would engender a universally uh, desired response, that every culture, every person would just say, okay, we just do this. But instead, of course, every country, every community, every culture has its own different reactions. And it's it's been fascinating because... Um, in Malaysia, which I think actually it's had its ups and downs, is it has done really quite well um, ultimately at uh, responding and keeping the numbers down. Whereas the United Kingdom has, you know, rich country, advanced country, uh, has had one of the highest per capita death rates in mm. the world, certainly amongst Absolutely. the advanced nations. And when I see the, the the English people here, their response to it is that it's it's uh, it's like a, it's a civil liberties issue almost that uh, the freedoms are being curtailed. And and uh, whereas in Malaysia, suddenly there would be roadblocks by police, and that roadblock may even be 
having soldiers with guns, but Malaysians are kind of like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is kind of bizarre because, you know, why, why, why would you need a guy with a gun? It makes no sense. Uh, whereas here, you know, they, it took such a long time for the British to be persuaded to wear face masks. I mean, I, I did visit, or rather friends of mine visited the UK at the beginning, and they, they struggled to find a face mask to buy. And uh, whereas Malaysia was already in an MCO and you, people would be looking at you like you were just a bad person if you were wearing a face mask. Um, if you were not wearing a face mask. No, she were wearing a face mask. This is the, oh, in the UK. Like, yeah, in the UK. But you were in, paranoid oh. and, and crazy or right, something. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and I was overhearing a conversation with some, some people, uh, and it, it just said it was the same conversation I've been hearing on the television around, mm-hmm. is that it's all about when this is over, as soon as it's over, I want it to be over, I'm going to go on holiday, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And this one, is militians or in the no, UK? No, British people. And one okay. thing that, I sort of realized is because, well, actually, the the British actually had larger freedoms than us insofar as they're richer than Malaysians. Continental Europe is so much closer. It is so much cheaper to go visit somewhere like Paris than it is for for us uh, that they have had those choices and those chances to jet off to Spain or whatever. Whereas, you know, in Malaysia, it's, uh, you know, even traveling to Singapore or kind of Singapore is going to be incredibly expensive, but um, you know, not everybody is always going to be so thrilled about. Hey, let's go to Lake Toba, Bangkok, or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and so I think that perhaps we were pre-programmed to have our civil liberties. Well, yeah, no, we were. We've always been we are conditioned. We are conditioned to give us a good enough reason. Um, and and initially we had that. We had somebody we we trusted, like um, the DG. Give us a good enough reason, and we all become uh, easy to deal with. We, we we just lay back and go, yeah, we want to survive this. Whereas I think the in the UK, in the US, and other places, it's like the the culture of questioning is just so much stronger mm. that things get questioned, and then and even even if a hundred people do it on the internet, it just grows. Whereas mm. I'm only seeing it now, you know, in Malaysia, people who are beginning to question how terrible is this is this pandemic. You know, you mean the, the we, response to the ta- pandemic or the pandemic itself? Uh, the response, the response. People are actually not as frightened as we were before. I think we were all just very focused on just staying alive or not, 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 not um, uh, bringing it to, to, to a higher level. Probably because we did so well initially. But um, I'm, I'm beginning to see people who are even, even intelligent people questioning it in the sense of going like close, I'm um, like one foot away from calling it an exaggeration or at least a a hoax or a hoax-like hoax. thing, yeah, mm. that people are not really getting sick, only one in a, in a million or whatever, you know. It, it's just a, the, the cynical thing that has been happening in the West is now mm. creeping into Malaysia, but not, not until last couple of months, I think. Mm. I, I don't think, I, I do, I, by, by looking at the two different communities, so I would say that it's not necessarily a case that Malaysians are docile, Mm. And biddable and uh, mm. it's just that you know we know what our choices are and our choices are quite restricted I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to also kind of paint it as like somebody who one country which believes in civil liberties and another country which which is more docile I, I think maybe it's just that we've had 
illness and disease and death closer to us than they have. So we right. take those things a bit more seriously. I mean, we've had SARS quite recently, mm. and, and we could see how it affected our neighbors very rapidly. We're, we're, in a, we're aware of how dengue can devastate you know, uh, a population, you know, and, and, and this, it was the same for the response in India. In response in India was also, they took it very seriously because they know how illnesses can spread. They're aware mm. of it. I think the difference is that the great plagues of Europe were very, very long time ago, whereas the great plagues of Asia were much more recent. You know, so they're kind, of within our me- they're kind of within our, our yeah. memory. And I think that's it. I, 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 do, I dislike the kind of thing about us being, oh, because we, 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 we're so, those Asian people are so obedient. They just do it without thinking, you know. And it kind of gets my goat as a disobedient Asian person myself. No, but, that, but that's the point that I wanted to make, yeah. that I think that it's actually, uh, it's a smokescreen to cover up the fact that actually, yes. Asians, well, Malaysians anyway, actually understand the language of the lies that mm-hmm. are being told to them. Yes. In a way that the British now, when I see them, they do not. Mm. We are right. in advance of them, way in advance in knowing no, I, I, how yeah, they're I think we're much more, I agree. We're, we're much more cynical about our yeah. politicians yeah. than, than our, I, think, I think they're quite naive in, in, our, our in the reaction, West. Our reaction to how the pandemic is being handled is definitely loud. We are screaming back at almost everything that, that, that mm. has been decided for us. But at the same time, I do see this um, until only recently. I do see that we do take it seriously. But we're, we're, we're putting it in our own hands in many ways. Yeah. I know people mm-hmm. who, who are just like, look, you know, I, I, I disagree with, with the travel thing or, or the vague um, law, rules and everything. But I am still going to not do this and not yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of that. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people deciding for themselves. And it goes yeah. more towards um, being careful. You know, I saw this very interesting video. This is not from the UK. This, I think this was in the US, but it's that same kind of thing where, you know, because it's touted as being you know, a land of liberty and fundamental liberties are so important. Don't you, don't you make me wear a mask? Don't you make me go through a scanner? But there are people who are very used to going through scanners, etc., because of their guns and the lack mm-hmm. of gun control. And there was this one video I watched of this guy. He was standing outside this building and he had in his hand like a remote control for a TV. Something like something like this, and he was standing outside. And everybody who walked past him, um, he took the scanner and he sort of like pretended to scan their bodies. And people came towards him, and they all automatically put their hands out in the shape of a cross, <laughs> and he scanned them. And they were they stood there completely obediently, and then went in. And he did this apparently for a very long time, and nobody questioned him. Oh, where nobody was asked that? him. Where was I think it was I think it was in the U- in, in the US. Hmm. Yeah, and nobody questioned him. Nobody asked him. And nobody had a, had a look at the fact that he was just carrying a TV what, remote control in his hands. I think that's part. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know about the US, but certainly in the UK, it, it's kind of it's really interesting to watch the, the news and even the news of say Channel Four, which is supposedly more uh, independent, alternative. Yeah, yeah. The the language they use is is a absolute throwback to the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties TV Tiga news you know the minister said this the the government has decided the minister said this while opening a a biscuit factory in kupong (laughs) (laughs) and uh and and it just you have this constant role of that language Mm -hmm. so that Mm. the 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 notion Mm. is in the case of and and i think this very true for nations up until uh, the 1990s that government not necessarily the government but government is to be trusted um, and it is flawless. Uh, well, not, I mean, it had, there can be problems, but it'll sort itself out. 
Yeah. And they are just not ready for the notion that government itself can be suborned, can be corrupted, can be overtaken by forces. Whereas that's exactly how we see government. Government is all that. So that, I think the whole Kita Jaga Kita movement was, was proof of that. Well, we've got a major pandemic. Forget about the government helping you. Let's help each other. Let's make yeah. sure we come out of this alive. Whereas mm-hmm. I think in the, in the West, it was like, okay, we turn to government, tell us what to do. And then, no, we won't, we won't do those things, but you must tell us what to do. So I think there's a kind of a different kind of herd mentality because they believe in government. And we fundamentally, I think, are suspicious uh, of government because we've seen them as being corrupt and, and Yeah, but, but, we, but we do still use the language of what's the government going to do about this? Something happens. You know, we, we right. do instinctively we, say that. We do still. We do want, we, we do want to be told uh, up to a point. Well, we, not necessarily told, but we, don't, we certainly want the government to intervene. Well, we we think it's them. a big force that can do things. Yes, but I think yes. we also kind of get on get on with doing things ourselves because we don't trust the government is going to do anything or do the right thing. So there's a flood in Kelantan. They're not going to wait for the government to do anything. No. Other Malaysians just pack up their, you know, their, their, their protons and drive up to Kelantan with supplies in the, in the back. And that happens yeah. a lot because you don't. I, I think don't, that's, that is definitely a, a cultural story that's been growing over the last 20 odd years. I, I think mm-hmm. that if you go, I, I would imagine if you look back at flood reactions or any kind of, uh, disaster reactions say 30 40 years ago mm. and look at the ngo charity individual right. responses yeah, i yeah. think even i think now private, it's private, exponentially private, um, bigger yeah mm. much much bigger yeah. yeah i mean it's always the same it stayed the same it's it's uh emergency supplies with which come late because things need to be stamped on them yeah you know but we, we understand that intrinsically but there's still a part of us which uh that i think i think we, we just have a certain kind of common sense. And I think, I think um, in the West, it's like the reaction to the, the government and not being more cynical is that it's harder for them to believe in something that would be considered common sense because, you know, because there could be um, a reason behind any government dictate. And they take it too far. You know what I mean? They're, they're too paranoid. Whereas um, we are kind of like, yeah, listen to the science a little bit and, and, and make up our own minds kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, we'll wrap this one up, but I guess the conclusion is that we're, we're better than everyone else. Is, is <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's been, it's been fascinating to, to see actually to, in a way, I feel like I've stepped back into a Malaysia of the early nineties. Uh, it's peculiar. Um, it does feel like an eighties even. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to move on, though, uh, to the final part of the show, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. Joko Kudas is desperately thinking what it is going to be. Uh, but no, okay, well, we'll, we'll go slow. Okay, yeah, I, but well, not is going to go first. Yeah, because my battery is running out, so you, I might suddenly disappear. There's a show, and I think it's on HBO, if, if, if I'm mistaken, but a quick Google would, would, would solve that. It's called Lovecraft Country. Have you guys heard of it? I've heard of it, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, it's... It is nothing that you would expect. I mean, I, I, I had some idea what it's like, but, but, but dig this, cats. It's like, um, it's set during the Jim Crow era in America. And, and the main characters are all African-Americans and you're all um, eccentric and well-read and you're science fiction geeks and everything. It's, it's um, uh, not your, the, the usual cliches that you would see from characters who are set during that, that time, right? Um, but there, there are they are that time informs their life. I mean, life is terrible for them, right? But yet, it's about it. it it's it's about uh, Lovecraftian um, 
hijinks. It's about science fiction. There's time travel. There's Indiana Jones style um, 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 uh, treasure hunts for for uh, mystical things. It's got every single genre you can think of in one show that's set in the Jim Crow era. And 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 I'm describing it in a sense. Uh, you know, you guys probably can't even imagine what it's like, and you would think it wouldn't work, but it does work. It's great fun. It's um, and it's and it's quite layered, of course, coming from that era, and yet it has all the the the, the fun and silliness of things like Stranger Things or, 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 or you know, well, not Game of Thrones. It's not high fantasy. So I recommend that. It's called Lovecraft Country. Give the first season a try. It's only one season, and uh, I, I think I think um. I think most people would like it for yeah. one reason or the other. Yeah. Sounds really good. Lovecraft well, country, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I finally had someone recommend it. I think I'll check it out. It, it looks, it's always been tempting me. I'll check yeah, it out. Yeah, it is. Lovecraft, as in HP Lovecraft, country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, Joe, you're on. What is it? Okay, so I want to, I've recently been watching uh, a lot of uh, Indian films because uh, I've gotten a bit bored of films from Hollywood. Hollywood. And uh, so I'd like to recommend a trilogy of films um, by a director called Vishal Badwaj, uh, because he, you know, because I'm all about the theater and Shakespeare and all the rest of it. So he's, he's done uh, adaptations of three of William Shakespeare's tragedies, namely oh, wow. the Scottish play, which I will not name, uh, Othello and Hamlet. Uh, so they are called, the first one's Makbul, which is the Scottish play, uh, Omkara, which is Othello, and Haider, which is his version of Hamlet. I haven't myself managed to watch either Makbul or Omkara because I can't find versions with subtitles. But recently on Netflix, uh, Haider is now playing on Netflix with subtitles, and it's just brilliant. It's Bengali, it's set in it's set in the Jammu and uh, Kashmir conflict. Uh, so he, it uses that as its as its kind of very dangerous backdrop, very then very Elsinore, very Denmark, uh, you know, uh, neighbors which are creating dangerous scenarios from them, but also civil war, brother against brother, a, betra- a lot of betrayals. Uh, it's got s- some incredible acting. I mean, I just love I love uh, Indian actors when they can just create this sense of just complete believability. You know, it doesn't feel like anybody's acting um and it's got i mean of course it's got some set pieces because it's you know not all indian films have these set pieces uh, performance set pieces but here because in hamlet there is the play within the play uh, there is this incredible set piece of performance which involves sort of choreography and puppetry and dance wow. which is a really quite magical found out later that piece was actually choreographed by a norwegian choreographer because they wanted to kind of create something very different and it's quite spectacular but just the the way he's adapted it he, the way he's uh, t- told the story, but also told the story of Kashmir and the civil war is really quite compelling. And you can so get it, at least one of them on Netflix? Yeah, Haida. This is Haida I'm describing. Okay. That, that's available on Netflix. So it, it, it's in Hindi, presumably? I, mean. I think it might not be in... I'm not sure actually what exactly what language it is. It's definitely in an, one of the no, languages that would be so, spoken. But, but you're not able then to work out if, it's, if it has a kind of a Shakespearean language. Uh, it's not that kind of adaptation. It's an adaptation of the story, I think, more than right. anything else. I, and it, but it has a certain theatricality. But it's he's interested in telling the story that's in in a different setting. So it's an adaptation. It's not trying to be a Shakespearean 
in, in that the wordsmithing sense, sense, in, 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 the... in the wordsmithing sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, like he's got, like for example, the way he's created Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, for example, they are just such incredible inventions. And you watch it, you think, wow, why, why couldn't I think of that? That's such a perfect idea. So no. you know, anybody who knows Hamlet watches it will will find much delight to be found, and the relationship between Hamlet and his mother is very interesting. Ophelia is very different. She's a very modern woman. With, she's extremely strong. She's like she like she's sort of trying to take Hamlet, trying to like protect him in many ways. But then the death of her father is something she can't she can't bear, and you know, and and you know, so that, and and her her brother Laertes is off in Delhi, uh, I think, working in a. In, in, a, in a in a large firm, I think, uh, to do with IT. So, you know, there's some really, really ah, quite wonderful... Totally, totally contemporary. Yeah. Oh, it's con- completely contemporary, yeah. 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 Oh, wow. it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does sound much. amazing. I mean, Hamlet's my favourite play. Yeah. Uh, but that, that sounds great. And, and the cinematography is really spectacular as well. I mean, the, 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 the sense of that country, the countryside, the cities, it's very rich. Yeah. And it's uh, five hours long? No, no, it's not a couple oh. of hours long. Oh, yeah. well, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe two and a half hours. I mean, it's Hamlet after all. Yeah, you yeah. Know. Wow. So what's it called? What, Haida. Haida. Oh, and it's got one of my favorite actors, Irfan Khan, playing a very small role. Oh, Irfan uh, Khan. Yeah. But he's, he's, got a, he's, got a, he's got a small but very significant role. So again, it's like to see how they create the character of the ghost. Because it's, so he's very inventive, mm. very inventive indeed. Which is the character that uh, Shakespeare himself played. Mm. So um, uh, okay, well that sounds great. Well, uh, after your two uh, recommendations, you, which you, you both sound that, great, Cam, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't. I thought I had one. I really thought <laughs> I, I, I knew. I'm going to show these guys. A, a new crunchy snack. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new breakfast cereal. Um, well, if they sponsored us, I would. But I uh, no, mine's really quite lame actually. After all that, it's a it's a TV show as well. Uh, but it's it's one that that actually gripped the. British people a while ago, and I stayed away from it. I was like, oh, I don't want to watch that. Um, and but it, the, the second season began whilst I was here, and, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll watch it. And it's actually really quite compelling. Uh, and and I do want to know what happens next. Um, it's called um, uh, Line of Duty. Uh, Line of Duty. Yeah, that and sounds so, familiar. Yeah, it was a huge was an American show. That's um, what I thought. Yeah. I, yeah, there was a film with Clint Eastwood, Line of Duty, completely different. Line of Duty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the line of duty though i think that yeah the yeah. Film, yeah and um it, it's a this is a police Come on, thing punk, make my day kind of thing no. yeah, yeah yeah so this is a police thing in internal investigations etc it it does reinforce this thing which i'm becoming very suspicious of now within british society which is the the policization of society <laughs> i'm not going to say police state because that has a different kind of um State authoritarianism, yeah. but when you have the police just as individuals become um, the, the, a law unto themselves, it does things to a person. And uh, it's known as all these kind of TV shows are known as blue wash, where you you kind of like rinse the image of the police and and and, and cops are actually them. lovely people and ah, yeah. they're just doing their jobs. They're just doing their jobs, and they're completely competent. They're, they're competent. All. So now that I'm, now that I'm saying this, I'm talking it down, but actually this this show Line of Duty is actually very compelling as a drama, and um, and uh, it doesn't match what you two said. So I'm, I'm feeling a bit churlish, and I'm going to stop. So. <laughs> So with that, we, we, we come to the end of this week's show. And in two weeks' time, I will finally be back in Malaysia and out of my hotel quarantine. So We'll still be doing it by Zoom, but you'll get yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
yeah. But I'm looking forward to that. So, um, so anyway, so uh, it only remains me now to thank uh, Na'a Murad. You're welcome, and it's a pleasure, always. And, and uh, Joe Kukadas in her cave in um, PJ. Welcome, City. Yeah. <laughs> nice yeah. to see you. Thanks for thanks for visiting me in my cave. Are, are we the first humans you've spoken to for like three months or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and myself, Cam Raslan. And uh, so please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.